that today they're going to be such a blessing to you. And there's a rich deposit, an apostolic deposit into your own personal heart, but into this house for what God's called us to do. And so will you just stand with me and honor them uh, as they come up and just begin to share what's on their heart. I love you. Thank you guys so much. Good morning, everybody. That worship was fire. Hallelujah. That was so much fun. Man, I love it that we can have fun with God. Isn't it good? It's so important that we do that. Connor, Jess, leadership team, all you guys, thank you so much. Um, honey, can you quickly stand up? I just want to introduce you. This is my beautiful wife, Michelle. You're going to hear something from her later. She's amazing. Um, outside of Jesus, she's my favorite person in the universe. Um, and yeah, I just love being married. It's probably one of God's best ideas is marriage. Hallelujah. Um, before I start, I quickly have three things I'm going to touch on, and then I'll, I'll do my sermon. The previous one, I had one thing, and it grew. All right. So um, first thing is what I want to say, and I always do that. I felt God encouraged me to do this whenever people sing this or say this a lot, um, because we're pretty Christianese, all of us, right? Which means like we kind of assume we all know what we mean or something. Okay, so whenever we say Jesus is beautiful or we sing he's beautiful, right, it actually means something, right? It, it doesn't mean like he's aesthetically pleasing, right? He might be aesthetically pleasing. I think he is. He's the most beautiful being aesthetically as well. He doesn't just make spiritual things. He makes material, real things. But, but there is actually a deeper meaning to the beauty of Jesus. Then it's not just, we're not just singing Jesus, you're beautiful. Like there is meaning to it. And so the, the I'm going to be a little bit, theological for like a second and i'll bring it down okay so the definition of the beauty of god is the sum total of all of its attributes that are desirable okay that's the one complex part and i'll explain it here's what it means it means this it means that jesus is all powerful he is omnipresent which means he's everywhere right he has all wisdom he is the most just being in the universe but also the most merciful being in the universe right and when you take all of his attributes and you say mercy plus justice plus all-powerful plus all-knowing plus omnipresent equals beauty. It's all of the things that he is in perfection combined together equals beauty. So whenever we say that Jesus, you're beautiful, we're not going like, wow, how does the man on the throne look? Although that is pretty awesome. But his beauty is more that if you look out there and it's green and the earth is not imploding because of his wisdom, he's upholding everything by the power of his word, that's beauty. The fact that like we've never told any animal to keep on reproducing and we can still eat because by some weird way everything just works, that's the beauty of God's wisdom. And when we're singing, Jesus, you're beautiful, we're singing, thank you, God, that the stars are not imploding. I'm not looking after the stars. In your wisdom and strength you're doing that so that's beauty second thing i want to say before i start is um this might be offensive to some of you okay but i'm not trying to be offensive okay so i'm going to try to say this as nicely as i can god does not let me start i'll start another point i'll start here god actually cares about a nation's economy. Okay? But he does not gauge whether a nation is economically flourishing with looking at their GDP. 
Okay? The reason God cares about the economy is because he made a real material world that really matters to him. He doesn't just care about your justification. He does care about that, but it's not just that. Okay, that leads to the earth looks like heaven. It's not gold dust. That is actually the rulership of Jesus on earth in our economy. Okay? God judges the economy of man right, by how we treat the least among us. Not by how much wealth we can generate. So God judges a nation's wealth by how they look at the poorest among them. God's economic system is poor-centric. Okay, now that's very offensive. And here's where people's minds will jump. That sounds like socialism or communism. No, not at all, because they want everybody poor. God wants everybody wealthy. Not rich, there's a difference. Okay, why do I say that? I have a reason. Okay, I'm saying that because if we think about the church, right, God doesn't value a church, or God, God, God doesn't judge a church by how well it can build its in, internal structure to grow its membership. God looks at a church and sees how close their hearts are connected to Him in first love. But then the second thing is, how much they are committed to reach those that's never heard his name. It's the same as the economy, right? A great businessman, God will not judge by how many billions you make. Right? But how do you care of distributing that in a healthy way to help empower others to do what God's called them? Okay? The second then section, if I take that now to church and reaching the unreached, if we have 50,000 people in our church, right, and the only thing we care about is getting blessed, Right? And how God blesses me and how he blesses my families and their businesses. Right? And we have no idea or actually even a concept of worth of the people in the refugee camp in the border of Syria. And there's nothing in our church that reaches beyond our wealth as a people to go make those people wealthy as well. Right? We have missed the mark. It's important that as a, as a people we understand that God's heart for the least reached in his church actually is an inoculation against the idolatry of self. We're getting a vaccination against self-worship when we actually care about the least reached. Because there's something kind of disruptive when you care about the least reached. There's something that kind of makes it hard to build a system that serves itself. Because when you care about them, it takes resources, right? And if you don't want to give the resources, it exposes your heart. So you don't know, do you know what we do? We stop preaching about it. Do you know why? Because then the people in my church don't get upset. Because they don't feel inadequate then. So I just bless them. Talk about how God blesses you in your business, right? And let's just build a bigger hotel and we all can get served. Okay, that's not kind of how it works. Okay, that's, I, that's why I'm saying this was a little bit intense. I was not at all that intense in the first service. But I kind of felt I just needed to say that part here. Okay, it does, God will judge the church according to that. We, we can't hide from that. Right, because if you know, you know. And if you just don't want to look, it doesn't mean you don't know. It's the same as if you drive past the township. 
and you don't want to look, it doesn't mean it does not exist. How many times have you stopped at a street light and seen somebody extremely broken stand in front of you and looked away? Who's done that? Because you don't want to look. Because if you look, this gate leads to this gate. And then you either do something or you harden your heart. So I'd rather just ignore it. <laughs> now, I'm really good at the ignore game. But the problem is God, like, doesn't ignore anything. Last point. Is, as, as we prayed earlier upstairs, I really felt God highlight just a, a word for you guys on humility as a church. And sometimes we talk about humility because, you need, because you're prideful. I don't think this is that. I feel God wants to talk about humility because he wants to do something of a promotion or an upgrade to this family. But as Heidi Baker says, there's a way up in the kingdom and it's very low and through a small door. You do not go up in this kingdom without going low. Now, humility in God's kingdom does not mean that you talk yourself down and remind yourself you're a sinner. That, that's not humility. Okay, you do not get, and I know this is offensive to some people, I'm not trying to be, there is no, you cannot be not Christian and humble. Because humility is not a heart's posture, humility is an attribute of God. Humility is not a heart's posture, it's an attribute of God. Because God is the only one who fully sees himself rightly. And so when, when we're called to be a humble people, we're called to humble ourselves, which means what? is I, through the Holy Spirit's leadership, I look at my life and where I've either made myself less than God has called me to be, or I've made myself more than He's called me to be, and I am readjusting my position before Him. And as I readjust my position before Him, He comes and imparts grace for me to be humble. My repositioning of either counting myself less or counting myself more is not humility, it's humbling myself. Humility only comes when he imparts who he is in my right position so I can actually be humble. So when I talk about you guys and there's an invitation to humility, it's an invitation not to be less, it's not an, invita it's not an invitation to be more, it's an invitation to stand rightly before him and he will share himself and you'll become the thing that he's made you to be. When we do not do that, what happens is God opposes the proud. But He gives grace to the humble. And I believe that as you guys are moving into this new season and what God is doing and all the mission and all those things, like those things are all great, but here's the thing. Promotion does not come from more effort. Promotion comes from submitting under the king. And I said in the first service, it does not come from trying harder. It comes from seeing clearer. You do not get grace from trying harder. You get grace from going lower. Okay, so let me add one quote that I didn't say in the first service. I'll say this. God is not opposed to effort. He's opposed to earning. God is not opposed to effort. He's opposed to earning. You can't earn anything in the kingdom. Sorry. You cannot climb into heaven. Right? Romans 10. 
Heaven came down. But my partnership with heaven is important. My response to his invitation is important. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. You're awesome. Speak to us, Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be pleasing in your sight. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so um, I want you to turn to Revelation 5. And um, I'm going to unpack this and kind of this is where I want to go today. I want to say the following is um, I, I, I'm going to unpack a lot. I'm going to just unpack kind of what happened before that in the Revelation and then kind of the historical background of what was happening to John there. And then I'll unpack this. But I, I want to ask us that this morning, my invitation to all of us is not earning. I, I feel like I want to keep on saying that. Like it's not earning. It's like when we see rightly, right, we can get rightly what is ours. And I remember one of the biggest things that I, me and I had a theological debate about forever for, with some of my friends is this question, can we be free from willful sin? I'm not talking about ignorance. I'm talking about can we be free from choosing to sin? And a lot of theological perspectives will tell you no. And it always upset me so much. And the reason why is I used to snort a ton of coke. And then God saved me. And most of the people that thought those theological concepts that you cannot get free from willful sin. I'm not talking ignorance. Okay, I don't think we can be free from ignorance until they go to heaven. Will choosing sin, willfully sinning. People that say that have sat in the ivory tower so long that they've not been around prostitutes and heroin addicts. Because, because if I sell a heroin addict a gospel that cannot free you, they won't want it. So I'm telling you, like heaven comes in you and you have a ticket to heaven, right? But Jesus did not come to... If you do not believe you can be free from willfully sinning, Jesus did not save you, but death did at the end of the day. The reason I'm mentioning this is the moment when I saw that clearly, 4,000 willful sins fell off my back. Because I had permission to sin. But all of a sudden, when I saw rightly, I did not try to be more holy. I just had permission to be who I am. And so my goal this morning is for you to see rightly, to have permission to be who God's called you to be. Right? And then sometimes, whenever I see clearly, there's invitation. And when the invitation comes, I respond. Right? Isaiah 6 sees the Lord high and seated. Right? Here's the invitation. It was not even to him. Who shall we send? Who shall go for us? He says, Here I am. Send me, Lord. Done. Thank you. He saw rightly, responded correctly. And all of a sudden, the prophet that probably prophesied Jesus the most gets sent. And so I want to encourage us this morning as you listen, listen with ears to hear and eyes to see what God is saying to you. If you're going to hear and listen with ears to hear and eyes to see what He's saying to your wife or to Connor 
or to this church and not just to what the Spirit is speaking to you, what would happen is, is that you would have great notes, hopefully in Jesus' name, and you would have an unchanged life. And the problem with Christianity is we can hear so much information that it never becomes revelation. And God will still hold you accountable for the information. You can never unhear certain things. Sorry. Like you sit in this building, you're in trouble. Because you're going to hear the truth and you can't hide from it. Okay. Hallelujah. Let's jump in. So, Revelation 5, the context. From that point on, Revelation 1, Jesus reveals himself. Then from 2 through, through 3, he speaks to the church, right? And he speaks to seven churches, and Jesus comes, and he, he gives them this um, judgment and encouragement. That's what Jesus does. He comes to church in Ephesus. He goes, well done. You've resisted heresy. Um, you have preached the gospel, right? You have withstood persecution, legitimate persecution. That's not like I said this morning. It's not like the power cable is being stolen, right? It's legitimately like some of your friends might have been murdered. You might have been tortured. There's been legitimate persecution. You've withstood it. And Jesus comes like, and he says, I know your deeds. I, I have kept my eye on you. Church in Ephesus, people say it's up to 50,000 Christians were there. It was the headquarters of Christianity in the time of John. And he goes, well done. You've done all these things right. He says, but I hold this one thing against you. You have forsaken your first love. And this is his next phrase, one of the scariest phrases in the Bible. And he says, consider how far you have fallen. Then he says, fix this, or what will I do? I will take away your lampstand. Right? That has nothing to do with salvation. God is not saying that I'm taking away your salvation. He is saying that I'm taking away your, your influence that you have. Now, I quickly want to make a quick contrast between Ephesus, because there's no, the, the church of Ephesus isn't 5 million people now, right? They're a house church, right, in that area. Probably that's there now. It's in, it's in Turkey. But the church in Ephesus, their influence is gone. But here's the thing. We're still reading, preaching, proclaiming the story of Mary of Bethany. The one kept first love, and forever her story is being told as one of victory. The one forget first love and first place and doesn't exist anymore. The one's influence speaks forever. The other's influence does not exist. They're a warning of what happens when ministry and good deeds takes the place of the first things. Now the reason I'm mentioning this is because we see how Jesus speaks to the church and he, he gives them judgment right but he also promises reward and his judgment by the grace of god is only in this age and his reward is forever all of his rewards are eternally true right i will give you a name that will last forever you will be a pillar in the house of my god like the the, the judgment thank god only lasts this life now some people get really uncomfortable when i talk about this but you can't like, you can't dodge it. It's kind of real. It's not because God is mean. It's just because you're disobedient. Right? So let, let me give you a good example. If you are friends in this church, and somebody has an issue with gossip, and they gossip a lot, 
What would be the outcome of gossip? Broken friendship. Because God made the world to function a certain way, you break the rules that He makes this world by gossiping, and what happens is relationships are destroyed. That's just the way that it is. But praise the Lord if you say, God, I'm sorry, forgive me. The relationship might still be in strain, but eternally you're secured before God. That's not an issue. Right? So we see here what Jesus does is as he speaks to these churches and he speaks judgment over their wrong action, the judgment is in the moment that they will feel the repercussions of them disobeying him, but their reward lasts forever. Now on the one end, that is terrifying because you cannot escape real material effects of your sin, but also, hallelujah, you cannot escape real favor and grace to forever be thanked by God for the cup of water He gives somebody else. Forever He will thank you for that. Now that's a very healthy tension as a church to live in. It's really hard, right? Because sometimes you go like, oh, how do I do that? It's simple, right? The only reason my legs move when I walk is when they move in tension. My hamstring pulls up, my quad releases. The tension makes me move. So whenever the church lives, learns to live in tension with God's truths, we move forward. Whenever we want one truth overemphasized, we stand stationary. And in the kingdom, when you do not go forward, you go backwards. That's just how it works. So I, that's how it starts. So John is here. He's seeing Jesus. He's speaking to the churches. Jesus is being nice, but he's pretty strain, uh, straightforward. We say, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Come, from, come to me and buy gold refined by fire. That's scary. If Jesus goes like, hey, like I see your reputation, but I judge you dead. <laughs> you can't like hide when the man with fire in his eye says that. When the judge who's called faithful and true speaks with that voice that's like a sword that cuts through everything, calls you not being alive, you are dead. But then he doesn't go and he leaves it there. He gives an invitation. He says, but come to me. I'll give to you gold refined by fire. So this is, this is the context in Revelation, right? So Revelation 4, after all of that conversation to the churches, the voice speaks and says to John, John, buddy, come up here. John gets caught up into the throne room. So it's not now Jesus just speaking to the churches, proclaiming judgment and invitation to grace. But actually, he stands now in this throne room and he sees the government of God. Right? He sees the beauty of the I Am, the Ancient of Days, and everybody worshiping before him. And this old man, an 80-something, maybe in his 90s, is beholding something that few human beings have ever seen. He's beholding this beautiful picture. All the creatures, everything is just worshiping, adoring Jesus. And then we get to Revelation 5. Revelation 4 is just the invitation to beauty, seeing the worth of God. But before I go there, I want to unpack a little bit of the historical context. Now, John here, it's 80-something, maybe 90, and he is the last one of all of his friends that's still alive. John the Beloved, an old man, scar tissue on his body 
from being thrown in a pot of boiling oil and did not die. He is not in a hotel in some reservation. He's working on Patmos, a prison island, as an old man, scar tissue burned from oil, working in a mine that are working him to death. That's, that's John. Okay? He's, he, he's not sitting in a great circumstances. All of his friends have been murdered. Peter crucified upside down. Paul has been decapitated. Like when Jesus said potentially 60 years earlier, hey guys, here's the thing. I'm going up. I'm going to come back again. You go, wait to be clothed with power from on high and proclaim, proclaim the gospel. Right? Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. They're like, oh, that's going to be quick. Let's see. Ten years, he's coming back. Five years, three years. This is 60 years later, and everything that he values has been murdered. He himself has been tortured, been put on a prison camp to work himself to death. That's the context. Nero, the Caesar of the day, right, would use Christians as lamps to his party. That he would impale them in his gardens, and because human fat burns a long time, he will set them on fire, and they would be the lanterns to his parties. That, that was the context of the day. It was not like, hey, somebody is poking us on freedom of speech. Right? That, that, that's not persecution yet. It's persecution when your life does not matter. If you have the name Christian. Right? They will sew them into animal skins and throw them in the Colosseum. With lions and bears and tigers and they'll get eaten alive. That's the context of the day. So whenever we read what I'm about to read, every place in Scripture is written to a specific people. It's written to mean something to them, and it cannot not mean to us what it didn't mean to them. I said this, if I text Michelle, I love you, and Jess takes that text, and she goes like, Gabe loves me. That's wrong. Why? Because the context is I'm speaking love and affection to my wife that I'm in covenant relationship with. Now, she then stands up and goes like, guys, Gabe loves me, and he loves every woman in this room. <clears throat> you've just taken my words out of context. You meant to, you've meant them to mean something for you that is never meant for you because it meant something specific to the receiver. And within Scripture, when we have to read it in context, is understanding that this specific piece was not written in some nebula. This was written in real history to real human beings. And to know what it means to us, we should know what it meant to them. And that's why I'm explaining to you the context where John is at. Because John here is not at a great place. He's, he's not having a fun time. It's like most of Paul's letters he wrote in prison. Whenever people take prosperity out of Paul, I want to laugh my face off. I was like, guys, do you know where he's writing this from? Writing this from having been shipwrecked three times, beaten with rods five times, whipped, stoned to death. Like he has had suffering in the rivers, suffering in the valleys, suffering on the mountains, in the cities, everywhere. Their, their call to Christian relationship is not a call to the blessed life. Because blessing in God's kingdom looks differently. 
Because my blessing you can never take away. And I might give him five coins now, but he will give me ten cities at the end of the age. Let me say this last thing and then I'll jump into Revelation 5. What is promotion in God's kingdom? Or what is a job well done? Somebody tell me. Hmm? If you were a good steward, how does God promote you? A holiday. Right? So you've hit your, your, your mark. How does God promote you? Responsibility. Promotion in God's kingdom is more responsibility. Why? Because the Father has been working since the beginning of the age. And so when I am obedient with this little bit of water right here, he goes like, well done, now I'm going to give you a ginormous jug. What's happening is, he goes like, that you think was too hard for you to do, so you leaned on me. Now you did that, well done. I'm going to give you something more impossible to do. Right? So you can lean on me. And then I'm going to give you something more impossible to do so you can lean on me. And that the promotion is actually nothing to do with giving you more what you want. It has everything to do with inviting you more to His work. The end of the Great Commission, what does Jesus say? Lo and behold, I'll be with you. Where is, what is the context of the worth? The worth is in the work. The worth is not in your holiday. Now, I don't have an issue with holiday. Okay, I love holidays. Hallelujah. And we need to rest. But what I'm saying is our view of how God promotes and takes us has everything to do with a self-serving system. When actually His system all serves Him. Because if it does not serve Him, it serves us. And when it serves us, it, it becomes like us. And everything that becomes like man dies. Okay, so Revelation 5. I didn't mention any of that in the previous service, but let's go there. Revelation 5. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Now, I'm going to say that, that opening the scroll and breaking the seals, it's just hope. Who's worthy to bring us hope? Because the scroll and the seals reference back to Daniel, which talks about the end of the age would come. Now you can imagine that our friend John here is pretty stoked. That suffering would end. Okay, you, you hear the context now. He's pretty happy. He's like, hey, yes, that's why I'm get caught up in the throne room, as I'm gonna see who's gonna bring an end to our suffering. And it goes on, and then it says, And no one in heaven, on earth or under the earth, was able to open the scroll and look into it. And now here comes the part that if I didn't explain, you will never have even seen this. And verse 4. And I began to weep. Can you feel that? This is John, the beloved, that's been marred. He's misfigured probably from the torture. Old man working manual labor. All his friends has been murdered. And he's like, yes, hope is coming. And they're looking everywhere on earth, everywhere in the heavenly realms, everywhere for an answer to bring hope. Now, I bet you he didn't even try to conjure up hope. 
He was just like, Jesus said it will happen. I'm not going to look for something. Jesus said he'll come back, so I'm just going to look for Jesus. Right? He's just like, I'm, and then that angel comes and says, but there, let's look for hope. And he's like, oh, there can be hope. And they look everywhere and nowhere is found. And his heart response is bitter weeping. Because he was not kind of in a hard space. He was not having kind of a hard day. The news wasn't upsetting him about our economy. He has lost everything a few times. He has nothing to show for his obedience. That's why John is weeping. Because there's real pain. Now, I bet you some of us have had real pain. He goes on and he says this. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy. That's a very important word there, worthy. No one was found worthy to bring hope. No one was found worthy to change the way that things are. Verse 5. And one of the elders said to me. Now this is very interesting. Jesus or the Father does not send John an angel to comfort him. He sends a human. He sends a human. Just before Jesus was about to get crucified on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Father did not send him angels to comfort him. He sent two humans. Because there's something about us having suffered that gives hope to others that it will be better. And we see here that the Lord sends an elder, a human, to say the following words, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse, has overcome. That's, imagine like John's heart. Imagine the sense of utter joy, the bliss that erupted from his heart. You go like, there is an answer. And God sends him a, another human to go like, hey, weep no more. There is one. That is one that has overcome, that's overcome all the torture, all the persecution, all the pain, all the lost hope. There is one that has overcome that. And he is the Lion of Judah. And it's very interesting. It is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus called the Lion. Only place. And then you think about this in this verse. And my, my in, initial thought is, okay, now tell me what, wh how did he overcome? Like, what did he do? Did he run into hell and go, the lion go rip everything apart and like destroy everything? And he roared and he's intense and he's a deep personality and the lion is doing it. Right? And, 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 and John is standing at the right hand of the throne, if you read before that, right? And, and he turns and he looks and in between the throne, he sees how the lion has overcome. And here's what it says. Verse 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures... I saw a mighty warrior that destroyed Satan and all his strongholds by his mighty strength. And he looked like Braveheart and the guy from Saving Private Ryan mixed. Is that what it says? No. It is saying the following. And among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it has been slain. And here... God is revealing to us and to John that his victory 
is like a lion defeating darkness. But the way it happens is by the sacrifice of the lamb. Now, now why is that important? It's important because we define power as strength. God defines power as submission. He goes like, Jesus' sacrifice, the lamb's sacrifice, had the effect of a lion conquering. But the way he did it was a lamb slain. Colossians 2, it says, the following, let me read it to us quickly. You don't have to turn there. Colossians 2 speaks and he says that, God made us alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, hallelujah, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed, important, the rulers and authorities, that talks about the heavenly realms, the demonic realm, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them at the cross. So Jesus here says, He triumphed, over the forces of darkness, right, over the demonic strongholds of this earth, and he put them to open shame at the cross. Now, why is that important when I'm talking about a lion and a lamb and the throne room? And da, 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 da. Here's why it's important. The word triumph there is word used in one other context in that time. And the word there is used from when a Roman general will defeat an army, right? What, what he would do is, if he defeated an army in Gaul in France... They didn't have social media. They didn't have, like, Facebook couldn't get shut down because of whatever. Like, they didn't have that even, right? They didn't have newspapers. So what this general would do is this general would go and he would defeat this army and he would capture their king and some of their gods and slaves and get all their best stuff. And he would come into Rome and he would triumph. He would walk around and parade what he has done. And show, like, look how great I am. I have defeated this people. So he would openly shame the enemy. And he would get glory. This general. Now Jesus openly shamed the powers of darkness. He openly shamed the demonic by not triumphing and going like, look at my greatness, but by hanging on a tree. Okay, listen now. Saying the following. There has never been a human being in history that has trusted the Father. And I will lay here and trust Him even into death. And my trust of the Father hanging on the tree is shaming darkness. Because my life declares the King can be trusted. It's important. Why is this important? Because it is an effect of a lion. The sacrifice of the Lamb. We do not live like a lion. If you live like a lion, you will have the effect of a lamb. If you live like the lamb, you have the effect of the lion. If our life becomes a sweet aroma, a sacrifice given in surrender to his leadership, my life becomes a powerful weapon against darkness. Why? Because I cannot raise myself. Everything I can do myself, I have to sustain myself. Everything that's born of the flesh is of the flesh. Everything that's born of the Spirit is of the Spirit. 
It's important that we catch here that John speaks about the way that we overcome. He does not, he reordens power. It is not critical theory where power structures are top down and we can never be defeated. Right? It is it's not power structures. It's not Marxism. Paul, uh, um, John is redefining what power looks like. And he says power is a low place because it's submitted to him. So, Guys, this is very important because here's why. Is we do not fight like this world. The weapons of our warfare are mighting and pulling down strongholds. Right? The weapons of our warfare are found in our heart's ability to submit to the king. The weapons of our warfare are not found in our ability to fight a good fight and resist the state. And da, 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 da. We will never win like that. Christianity has never won like that. Whenever we take up the world's way of fighting wars, we become tyrants. Look at the church in the Middle Ages. We built armies and became the oppressors. That's what happens when we do not understand how God uses power. He goes on, he says, standing as though it's been slain with seven horns, seven eyes, which is weird. I don't know what that means. Have you seen people trying to draw those pictures? These the weirdest pictures. Like, don't draw the picture. <laughs> Just leave it to my imagination. It's way better. <clears throat> which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And this is important, right? Here is just another apologetic for Jesus being fully God. Here it says, the seven spirits of God rest upon the Lamb. That's, that's an apologetic for people saying that Jesus is not fully God. He is like just the Son of God. No, no, no. Here it's the seven spirits of God rests upon him. It's important. It goes on and it says, And he went in and took the scroll from the right hand of him who seated on the throne. Verse 8, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, I love this because they didn't have to say this part here, but there, God designed it to be written into the Word that our prayers actually are burning before the throne. That our prayers are not forgotten. That our prayers are not just out there floating. No, no, they're actually being caught in heaven and they're burning before the throne. Right now, I want to tell a story to explain why this is important. Um, we opened up our prayer room last year, and when we had to kind of, we had to break out a wall to make it bigger. And I wanted to take the hammer and hit the wall. And I felt God said, no, don't give it to Hannah. She's one of our leaders. Let her hit the wall. I was like, okay, that's strange. I gave it to her. She hits the wall. I thought maybe it's because she's older. She's been saved longer. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> she's been saved the longest in our team. So that's why I kind of thought that. And I was like, okay. And about a month later, we were in Sin in Brazil. We're standing in this room with all these famous Christians. And it's like, literally, me and Michelle are the only people in the room that's kind of like no names. And it's really awkward. It's kind of weird. And I'm standing next to this guy, and his name is Adam Cox. He's from 24-7 Prayer. Like, he's an epic guy. Helped write Red Wind Rising. He leads a church. And I know who he is. And he looks at me and asks a very good question. He's like, oh, who are you? Right? And I kind of laughed when he asked that question because everybody else in the room was famous Christians. I knew who everybody in the room was, right? And I was like, that's a great question. My name is Gabriel. And he's like, oh, you're from South Africa. And I'm extremely impressed. Because usually if people hear my accent, 
they never think I'm from South Africa. They usually think I'm from either New Zealand or Australia. And it's because I'm white, right? So I just usually poke fun at Americans because I get so uncomfortable when you talk about race. So I go like, why do you usually say that? It's because I'm white. And they're just like, no, it's just really funny. It's really, really funny. You can just make fun of that stuff. Hallelujah, we're South Africans. We've heard everything, right? And so I, I say, wow, that's impressive. You got it right. And he's like, yes, um, his wife is actually South African. And I was like, and he's like, where are you from? I was like, oh, I'm from Potchefstroom. He's like, in the Northwest. And I'm like, shook. I'm like, getting my accent right was impressive, but knowing where Poch is, like, that must be a sign and a wonder. Like, that is like, that is a miracle. And I was like, yes, how do you know? He's like, well, I went to Poch 13 years ago with Floyd McClung to go plant a prayer room because God said a missions movement will come from that city. And I'm like rocked, right? So I'll go back to our core team. I'll tell them the story. And Hannah goes like, Gabe, you won't believe it. I was actually a part of that team. And God speaks to me. He says, Gabriel, the reason I had Hannah hit the first shot into the wall is because I wanted all of you to know I never forget one prayer. It's that her first shot in the wall actually happened 13 years ago. And, and guys, I could not know that. Right? So that was... That's what this means, is that the incense, the prayers of the saints are burning because God never forgets one of our prayers. He never forgets the things that we pray according to His will. He wants them to happen because it gives the Father glory, according to John 13. Then something very interesting happened, and they sang a new song. And I said this in the first service. It's like, imagine a new song in heaven. It must be epic. Right? They're so host to, used to holy, holy, holy. The moment the song changes, it's a big deal. Right? The moment the song becomes something else, it's huge. Right? And, and here's the prophetic utterance that leaps forth from their, from their mouths. Listen to this. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seal, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And here's, here's what I want to say. This, all of what I said kind of leads to this moment. Is that John, in his brokenness, was looking for hope. And then... The father does not come and comfort him with saying everything will be okay. I'll get you off the island and I'll heal all your pain. The father doesn't do that. Right? The father comes and he redefines power. He comes and shows him the power of prayer. He reveals Jesus in a way he's never seen him, although he laid on his chest. And then he says, I want you to know what all of heaven is focusing on. It is not you. It's every people, every nation, every tribe, every tongue. Is that the focus in the midst of the deepest darkness was not necessarily John. Sorry, buddy. Because our humanness desires that the world turns around us. But in this moment, we see the weeping stops when the vision is replaced. The weeping does not stop when the suffering stopped. The weeping stopped when they saw things rightly. 
John saw rightly all of a sudden God's cosmic plan to see all of humanity, all of the cultures, the languages, all of it being made into something completely new. And we are reordered to be a kingdom of priesthood, ministers to Him. And then it says this, and then we shall reign on the earth. There is victory, right, in what Jesus brings. So He says this, right, I want to read this, this is important. He ransomed people, every tribe, language, people, and nation. Now, those are four things that divide us. Right? And then he goes like, and you have made them a kingdom. So, four points of tension in humanity is made into one new thing. That's called, there's a different word for it, you call it the church. Okay? So, so he makes a new humanity, and he says, your role is to minister to me, and then to reign on the earth. Now, that reigning on the earth, you would go like, well, that's why I need to be CEO, so I can tell everybody what to do. No, 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 did you not see God redefine power for John? And he showed that reigning looks like submitting. If you want to rule on this earth, you need to submit under his leadership. Leadership on this earth, reigning, being victorious on this earth, has nothing to do with your ability to be a strong leader. It has everything to do with your ability to submit under his leadership. As that the, the defining moment of the new humanity it's not their ability to do the right thing. It's their ability to submit under the right king. It's that their king is defined as one that does not rule by strength, but rules by meekness and humility. And I said this in the first service. The invitation is to take the yoke. It's not to do everything right. Because when I take his yoke, I actually become like him. Now, what the heck does this have to do with you? Everything. Here's why. It's because if we don't understand what it looks like to reign on this earth, we would create a culture of radical that is built upon the person that we have judged as the most radical person, and everybody would try to hit their mark. When reigning on this earth, according to the word, is submitting to Jesus' leadership, not according to our cultural construct of radical. Now, I'll tell a story that I didn't tell in the first service to help unpack this. I went to Nepal. We're going again. Hallelujah. And the first time I went, <clears throat> Maurice's brother was there as well. It's the first time I saw him cry from tiredness. It was amazing. <laughs> All right? <clears throat> if you've hiked 39 kilometers in one day in the highest mountains on earth, you'll cry as well. And I remember we had the hardest day of hiking. We hiked like 18 hours up and down the craziest mountains. Got lost, slept outside. It was minus 11 degrees. Like it was, it was really hard. Everybody had diarrhea. We all were sick. It was horrible. And um, we hiked over this whole valley to get to this place. And I'm literally walking, thinking to myself, just call me freaking Hudson. <laughs> right? Because I'm Hudson Taylor. Like I'm the wildest missionary you've ever met. Like, I am radical. Like, come on. I don't know anybody in my immediate environment who's went through this amount of suffering for the sake of the kingdom 
just call me Brother Teresa. Right? Like, I, I, I'm there. Right? I'm just like under Jesus. Okay? And, 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 and I'm just pretty much gloating on my own pridefulness and arrogance about how radical I am. And this pastor that we met the previous day and prayed for, right, is coming from the front, walking that way. And I was like, we see him like, hi, pastor. Da, da. And the guy translates. He's like, oh, yeah, yesterday when we're done with him, he walked to the city we're going to and he's walking back today again. And he does this um, twice a week. And I'm like, like I, you just destroyed my vision of radical. Because I was the most radical. And all of a sudden, you made my radical look like your weekly schedule. And that's what happens when we have a pseudo-projection of what God values the most. And we put the standard there and we say, everybody needs to hit this. Do you know what if happens if everybody hits this? They will. That's the danger. They will hit that. And the problem is, when we tell people to hit a mark that God didn't tell them to hit, the problem with that is, the problem with that is, they will not hit the mark that God gave them. They will hit the mark that Gabriel gave them. Now, why is that important? It's important because reigning on the earth looks like being a good mom. It looks like being a good actuaris, right? If God called you to do those things, reigning on the earth means that you've heard His voice and you are living according to His leadership in submission, bringing the kingdom in a way only you can bring it. Right? The hope that is meant to be brought by the kingdom is not that we have set up a culture of radical that's dependent on the person that can do the most things that we have collectively decided is important. Guys, you need to catch this. This is very important. Radical has everything to do with being rooted. The word radical, it's etymology, where it comes from. It comes from the word rooted. So to be radical is to be rooted in God. To be radical is not to live up to a person's expectation. Now, why is that important? It's important because I'm a vocational missionary and I teach this book for a life. And I go to stupid places to do it. Sometimes I go to Santon City and other times I go to the high Himalayas. Other times I sneak into war zones and get chased by border patrol. And other times I go to London and preach at awesome fancy places in the middle of the city. That's, that's, my, that's my job. Okay? My wife right here is a corporate lawyer and she's a missionary. And her missional job is to restructure companies so they can participate in our land's economy. Now, who's more radical? Well, if she's obedient to Jesus, and I'm just trying to play Christian missionary, she's more radical. Now, it's all fun and games, but I'm going to have Michelle come up, right? Yes, it's, they said it's a lad, the lad, the, they can go later this time, so it's fine. And she's going to share quickly. You don't have to be that quick. Don't worry. They have endurance. It's one Sunday. She's going to share quickly a little bit of her story. And the reason why is, is my wife is awesome. But I think that we are a prophetic image of what God is doing. And that He's not just value, valuing the 1040 window. 
he's also valuing the CBD. And that if we create a structure that does not value what he values, we actually are in opposition to him. Because everything we build that is not in opposition to him opposes him. Or in submission to him opposes him. So everything we build needs to be led from his leadership instead of what we have created to be important. Okay, guys, I'm going to... Whoa. Hello. I'm going to try and make this quick. Um, but I, we just really felt that there's just power in testimony, you know. And the Lord has just done so much in my life from missions to corporate and everything in between. So I'm just going to give you a little bit of a background. But I want you to stay in this atmosphere of remembering the story that, that Gabe has led us in, in Scripture and where you're at. And just ask the Lord, you know. It's by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. So I really believe my testimony will just solidify things and just try and hear the Holy Spirit as we go. Like, God, what are you saying to me? What are you revealing to me? So just a quick background of me. First, 20 weeks pregnant. <laughs> so we're halfway. I just desperately feel the need to tell it wherever I go. I'm like, this is, <laughs> this is my first pregnancy. I'm sorry for everyone around me. You don't know my name, but I'm pregnant. <laughs> you know, so um, I just feel that need. But anyway, so more background of me is I studied LLB. I studied BCom Law first and then LLB. And then I did my master's degree in Poch. Um, got amazing opportunities in Johannesburg to come work at big law firms here. But God was like, if you want to marry Gabe, then you have to say in Poch. So I trusted for a job in Poch. Have you been to Poch? It's really hard to trust for a good job in Poch. And um, the salaries there is basically like one-fourth of what you would get here. But God spoke, got a law firm, said yes. I did my articles there in 2015 and 16, And it was the biggest shock of my life. I just came from this radical student church community we meet every morning at six, our leadership team, we pray, we fast weekly, and here I am, my job start, starts at 7 a.m., and I end sometimes at 7 p.m. or 7, 9, or 9 p.m., depending on my boss's mood, because he was an atheist, he didn't value people, he didn't value anything, he would sometimes come in, cuss all of us, um, my first fight with him was he wanted me to lie to a client, I refused to, because I really felt the Lord said, if you compromise here, this will be your life. You will have to say yes to things the whole time. So he basically just said something like, call this client and says, our computer system is off. We'll come back to them tomorrow because they're upset. And I said, I will not do that. We had a massive fight. And then they, they would literally come to me with things and say, okay, don't do this. Don't, you're going to have to, no, don't do this. This is the truth. You can do this case. And I'm like, thank you. So that was like from the day one, like I'm very kind and I love people, but when there's a line that you will not cross and when you do it's like the whole lion thing with the lamb you know I'm like in between but then so God just showed me clear boundary lines of what to say yes to and what to say no to in this time God told me Michelle when he's not there go to his office and just pray over his office like just release the spirit of God into his office and it was so interesting because Gabe was like running this radical missions movement and I was a part of that as well but I told him so often, Gabriel, you know what? None of those people will be able to get past our secretary. But I'm like in our director's office every single day releasing the spirit of God. And I think something happened in my heart there because I was like, it really isn't, like there isn't a greater. It truly is obedience. And I remember like being praying in his office and I'm like, God, I thank you that I get to do this. And this is while I'm literally crying 
every single night for three months because I'm so shocked this is my life right now. I'm working the whole time, but I also wanted to be a part of this church community, so I had to get up super early, be at 6, Monday to Friday for prayer, start to work at 7, get back, join the church for leadership stuff, etc. So that was my life in, in doing my articles. Then at the end of 2017, God spoke so clearly to me at a missions conference we had in our town. Um, everyone put up their shoes and said, send us God, we will go. And God said, well, Michelle, you guys are the first ones that's going to go. And I'm like, no, I'm confused. Like, I'm going to be the best lawyer in South Africa. Like, I have goals, like, blah. And eventually God spoke and I'm like, okay, I'm, here I go. And I honestly think that fasting in that community we had once a week was like me saying no to my flesh every single week for at least one day. And it was actually easy at the end of the day to say yes to the Lord, to say yes to all my fleshly desires. Got the best promotion ever just before we had to go. Classic, right? I was like, Lord, you're worth it. So we ended up going and we went to Kona, Hawaii. Great suffering in Hawaii there for two years. And in this time, I was... I just want to say something. I hated Hawaii. The reason I hated it is because it's the warmest place in the universe. And I would, I would preach, and literally the sweat would be dripping from my elbow. I hated every second of it. I went, the last six months, I didn't go to the beach once. I just, I hated it. I was like, I hate this. Give me somewhere cold. Anyway, keep going. Yes, I think this was so needed this time in um, Kona. Because I don't know about some of you, but I just had this view of like, wow, so fun, you know, to be a pastor or like a missionary. You're just like always in the glory. You're so blessed. Like you're just having coffees with people. Wow, like must be hard. Like, do you know my life? <laughs> and then in that time, I had a rude awakening. And I think one or two mission trips a year would never teach you the cost of what it is to be in full-time vocational fostering missions or everything. And I really got respect for it as a vocation. And I was like, this is freaking hard. There is no boundaries sometimes. Like it will take everything if you do not put in boundary places. And these people, I'm sorry if you didn't have that experience in previous missions basis, but what we're a part of, it is intense. Like I have to pray to God to get time with my husband and we have to plan really well. But I think that was so necessary for me to um, just understand the both. And in the midst of it, God always told me, Michelle, you're not called to vocational full-time missions. You're, you have the heart of the missionary, and I will send you back. But he said, law and business is your Isaac, and you put that on the altar, and only I will tell you to pick it up and when. And I was like, I'm going to be like 40 and so behind. <laughs> like, this is the worst, but I trust you. And um, eventually lost... When, I think December 2019, we moved back with like 27 people to plant a fire and fragrance mission space in South Africa, in Potchefstroom. And in 2020, God started releasing dreams and prophecies again that, Michelle, the time is now. And I was like so excited. But I felt him the whole time to say, wait, wait, wait. So eventually, um, I got three job opportunities without applying for anything in a time like in the COVID year, 2020. And I was so confused. Gabe loves the first one. So the first job opportunity was just massive, like massive salary. I was, I loved family law when I articled and it was like, I could basically help townships with legal cases for people that can't afford it. And they would pay me a massive salary. And so it's her, like everything her first salary would have been 52,000 rand a month, right? This is her first salary after for two years not doing law. They're like, hey, we'll start you there, we'll buy you a building, you should just do this. Yes, it's like everything on a silver platter, I investigated it, they already had the funds, everything. I was like, what the heck? Um, prayed about it, you know, because we say, God, I pray for an open door, 
But I believe we're children of God. Every single door will fling over, open. But do we have the self-control to still ask the Lord, which door? What are you saying? So at the end of the day, God said no. And I was shocked. And I was like, wow, that I maybe just ruined my only chance ever. And he did say I'm going back into business and law, so I'm truly confused. Um, but we trusted God, all of us. We've, our community prayed with us, and everyone felt no. So we're like, okay. And then after that, got another opportunity. And then the third opportunity was actually a remote work on my computer, half maybe half and less the salary, it was crazy, prayed, we all felt peace and we're like, wow, okay, this is happening, said yes to it and I'm doing that till today. I think the awesome thing that I want to share with you guys is some lessons that I really learned is that, first of all, there's no excuses for intimacy. Like, you can, you can be a corporate lawyer and be busy from 6 a.m. till 9 p.m. and then only go home and there will be grace for intimacy with the Lord. Or you can be a missionary and you can be so far from the Lord because you think you've made it. You know, so there's, it's fair competition in the kingdom. Like intimacy is for all of us and there truly is no excuse. And I think I've been so convicted through the years of like seeing in my own life and in some of my friends' life how if they go to the corporate or if they go to another sphere, then all of a sudden they're like, no, but this is what matters. God made us tent makers. Like we have to work. I'm like, I remember you. I remember how years ago your heart burned for missions. And all of a sudden you're now in your season. This is all that matters. And God said to me, Michelle, never make the mistake of only valuing the one. It's both and more. And luckily we're in that tension every single day. It's both and more. So I just really want to encourage you guys, even with that, that it truly is both and more. And don't forget what burned in your heart once. And don't think one of the two is more important or less. Was there anything else? My notes went out. Gabe can just talk out of here. I'm like, I'm, I had a structure. Now my phone went off. <laughs> yes, okay. So this new job is incredible. My boss, first boss, articles, atheist, second boss. So let me say this, right? If the first lesson was that nobody is an excuse for intimacy, the second lesson was nobody is an excuse to be an evangelist. Yes, so second boss on fire for Jesus. He actually was discipled by Floyd McClung, which is one of the founders of YWAM as well. He was part of that movement in the beginning. So we talked the same. He told, tell, tells me to pray with someone else for 30 minutes in our company, 30 minutes a week as part of my schedule. And then we would send him the words we received from the Lord. So it's part of, and I'm like, what? Like I was in for great suffering. Like God, is this real? So just so, such a redemptive um, story. I work remotely. So we're in Albania on mission. I work some days and then other days I'm on mission with the team. So it's just, it was a word over my life. It's not how everyone's going to look, but I got a double portion word in 2016. And God said, you never have to choose. It will be both. So um, we're in, so he lives in Germany, but he's like two thirds of, or one third of the years in South Africa. So I actually met my boss 10 days, no, two weeks ago, right? And he came for 10 days to South Africa. And um, he asked me to go with him to a meeting with investors. And they all have suits on. It's super corporate. And he's explaining to them this restructuring model. I'm just making notes. I literally know nothing, but I'm learning so much. And um, there's two executives. I think he told the story in the first service, right? So one of the executives get up. And my boss really knows the other one. And after this wow moment of this new plan that he has for the companies, he just looks at this guy and he says, 
I want you, I want to, I want us to ask the Lord, how are we getting the other executive into the kingdom of God? And I was like shocked. I didn't know it was like corporate legal to do that. I was like, how, how did this just transition so fast? I'm overwhelmed. Like I love God, but I'm also like stunned. And the guy like was taken back and he was like, wow, um, yes, I do love God. And I've actually been praying for this guy and I felt the Lord said that he will enter the kingdom can you pray with me we have to contend together and I was completely shocked and convicted because not once did I actually ask the Holy Spirit what he wants to do in that meeting and I think we've made this sacred secular thing so far from each other we say it's not but we live like that and I think there's such an easy transition that the Lord wants to teach us in this time and age that people are hungry for him whether they're in Nepal on a mountain searching for meaning and worshiping a rock, whether they're in corporate and you think the heart is as hard as a rock, like God wants to come through. So I just want to encourage you guys, let's not neglect the one or the other. Let's not be in corporate for five years and say, God said I should be there. And I'm asking you, what is the fruit of you being there? And you have nothing to show. Like there has to be fruit to what we say yes to. And it's a hard question and it's convicting, but unfortunately it's the gospel. So we're either in or we're out. So I just want to encourage you guys of my testimony that God can truly do it, but we have to ask the hard questions and we have to be willing to say yes to anything. Amen. Good job, honey. So I want, I want, to, I want to end this and I want to say the following is that we are primary citizens of the kingdom that serves the king, right? And we serve the king by serving the people on this earth. We do not reign on this earth by having a top-down structure. The greatest among you will be the servant. And so if you want to be, what is, the, what is a godly pilot? A good pilot. What's a godly accountant? A good accountant revelatory because you cannot talk to somebody about how do we get an executive safe if you can't do your job you dishonor the king you dishonor the kingdom and so this morning I want to end with this and this went way longer I'm so sorry guys but I want to say this is I believe there's a call to this house to be apostolic and to be apostolic you need to be sent You only can be sent if you hear his voice, you know what he's sending you to. But the tension in this house is how do we count our GDP? How do we count what is most wealthy? I believe in your cases, how do we look after the poor? And how do we go to the most unreached? Because you're going to have some of you here that's going to be church vocational, that if you are not careful, you will not look after the unreached. And some of you will be executives and your calling will be the business world. If you're not careful, you'll forget about the poor. And your calling is not either or. It's both and. It is hiking to the highest mountains and sitting in board meetings and seeing the leadership of Jesus manifested. And so I want to pray for you guys. But I actually, I want to do it a little bit different than I did the first service. I'm going to give you a great opportunity and prayer here, right? I'm going to give you this opportunity. I'm going to give you an awesome opportunity to repent of where you have disobeyed God or where you've made an idol of radical. And so I'm going to pray for us. And when I say amen, 
we're going to use the rest of our time together to turn to whoever's sitting next to you and do business with God. All right? I would encourage husbands and wives to talk to each other. If you don't have somebody, go to somebody that sits alone and go be with them and just pray for each other because here's what I want you to do. I want you to ask, Holy Spirit, is there any area what you're convicting in my life right now? Because I believe that we will hear stories. I, I fully believe we'll hear stories of, of, of teachers seeing things happen, of moms having such liberty all of a sudden because I don't feel guilty looking after my children anymore. I don't feel I need to do more because I know that's what God said. I believe we're going to hear stories of artists creating and going like, man, this is my design. We're going to hear stories of people going to the Ukraine and going like, man, I saw five salvations. I know what I made for. We're going to hear stories of executives and building businesses and establishing an infrastructure that can actually see God's kingdom come. I believe we're going to see that if we realize that apostolically he wants to send all of us to where we need to go. And it doesn't happen from just wishing we hit the mark. It comes from listening to his voice and allowing him to lead us to where he wants us to go. So I want to pray and I want to say amen. I want us to turn to each other. I'm actually going to come sit with Michelle and pray with her because I actually believe there's a moment for us to do business with God. So Lord, we just thank you this morning. God, I ask that your word, you would break open. Lord, what do you want to say to us? And Lord, I ask that you would convict every place. Thank you for sweet conviction. We want to joyfully repent. Every place where we have made something important that you did not. Where we called something your will when it was just our idea. And I just ask, Holy Spirit, will you show us? Will you show us your dream? We want your dream, God. Build your dream. Don't build our dreams. Build your dream. Show us, Father. Give us humility this morning to turn away from our own selfishness, from our own prideful ways, and to joyfully run to you, Jesus. So just let's take the next few minutes and just pray together, and then Connor will end us off.